Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with today's host, Todd Benton. I'm your co-host, Helen Hillix. Today's topic is how can technology support an inner revolution? A look into the future of artificial intelligence and other technologies with co-host Helen Hillix and Todd Benton and our very welcome guest, Elliot Hedman. Imagine that your phone, tablet, or wearable can detect your emotions in real time. This is not some far-off fantasy. Already, researchers at MIT's Media Lab have developed software and wearables that can detect human emotions. And these technologies have spun out into companies that are applying these technologies in fields as diverse as advertising, marketing, product design and development, and education. Today, we'll speak with the founder of one of these companies, Elliot Hedman, who started Empath in 2011 and has worked with a wide variety of groups, from autistic children to companies such as Lego, Best Buy, and Lowe's Home Improvement. With these expanding capabilities, could our devices become our digital counselors, supporting us to have more empathy and to stop and reflect more often? Tune in and find out today. So we are so excited to have you, Elliot. So excited. And I'm going to turn the show over to Todd, our host. All right. Well, welcome, everyone, and welcome, Elliot. Um, I thought uh, I'd like to start with the closing remarks from your dissertation. So I'm just going to read that, and I think that'll help set the stage for everyone. And we'll get into the details of the technologies, what they can do, and especially your question about how do we communicate emotions. But I just I think this is a great place to start. So... This is what Elliot says at the end of his dissertation, uh, his closing remarks. I end every story with my father, Dana. My dad is a school bus driver in Summit County, Colorado, where there tends to be snow on the ground most of the year. Every time I call my father, he updates me on his passengers. Jimmy got in a fight with Sam today, or Susie did really well on her math test. My father cares about his customers. On the last day of school, he brought a box of pinwheels and gave one to each child. As they drove down the highway, the children put the pinwheels out the window and started smiling and laughing as my dad said goodbye for the summer. I want the Best Buys and Comcasts of the world to care and understand their customers in the same way my dad understands his. I believe thick psychophysiology can help bridge decision makers with the customers they serve. Today, there is not enough empathy in the world and far too few pinwheels. Let's change that. I love that. I just so love I. that. That just warms my heart. And uh, and so, say hi to everybody, Elliot. Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Elliot Hedman. I am a, a design researcher at Empath, and uh, I study a lot about emotions and technology, and I really appreciate being on this uh, program. I love talking about the kind of more spiritual end of measuring emotions and the importance for self-reflection. So this is a rare opportunity for me. You so know, I, you. I don't cool. know if Todd told you, but, you know, he reached out, you know, to a number of people about this show. And, you know, I just felt like we're not reaching the right person. And then, <laughs> and then at the last minute, your name came up and I, and, you know, it, and you were available and it was so thrilling because I felt such a resonance with your work and with your personality, I guess I would say, um, espe- you know, starting with the name of your company, Empath. I just love that. I thought that was so clever. Yeah. And the URL the, uh, is buildempathy.com, right? 
And and for the uh, for the listeners out there, it's M P A T H. And um, I mean, this is a little foreshadowing of my work, but um, I very intentionally made it kind of vague without that e in there because most of my clients they're not looking to buy empathy. Um, right. I don't know <laughs> many people who are saying, "Man, I wish I understood the people around me better. I'd pay a lot of money to understand them." Um, that almost never happens. It's usually. You can tell when I'm working with the corporations because they're like, oh, so what's the M direction? You want to tell me more about that? <laughs> Guys. <laughs> I, I, that is so hysterical. And, you know, it's small M, capital P-A-T-H, which, you know, is so like iPhone or e-card or whatever. So to me, trendy, uh, mm-hmm. being a 68-year-old person, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, so, it's such a youthful way of saying it, but so clever. I just loved it. So, Todd, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm jumping in already. That's fine. I mean, I have a lot of questions, too. But, um, you know, the what how this whole conversation came about is I'm reading Kevin Kelly's book called uh, The Inevitable. I don't know if you know about it, but he's talking about the 13 or 12 trends that are going to be that are happening over the next 30 years or so that are really going to change the way we relate and, you know, use technology. And technology is going to be so much more integrated into our everyday experience. And I think... You know, for, for those of us who are deeply engaged or at least have a, a high level of interest in this type of thing, um, you know, I understand that. But I, I want to give people a sense of the technology itself so they, you know, our listeners may not be as much of followers of technology as, as I am and or as we are. And so I think that's an important aspect of the conversation. And I do want to spend a lot of time on how do we communicate emotions how do you, you know, so much of the things. So um, I, I I'm not sure. I want to throw something in here. You know, when he first started talking about this topic, we do all of our shows together, Mm -hmm. Elliot. And it's like, uh, (laughs) you know, the idea, I'm not a techie at all. Todd Mm -hmm. in our organization is the, in the innerrevolution.org is the guy who is up on the technology. I am a reluctant person to say the least and and get dragged along because because I have to learn technology Um, and you know I've had to learn video conferencing because I'm a marriage and family therapist by trade Mm -hmm. and you know I do a lot of work now on video conferencing with clients all over the country or Mm -hmm. even all over the world for that matter so um, it's it's but that fascinates me. And when we found you, and I read that MIT article about you, I thought, this is the guy that needs to be talking about this, because <laughs> you are the one that I can really feel is integrating the three principles from the inner revolution, which are oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And I feel like the work you're doing at Empath is really integrating that artificial intelligence with like you said, with empathy, which is, of course, oneness. It says we are each other and Mm -hmm. accountability, that the companies are accountable to their customers and the educators are accountable to the children that we're trying to teach and that mutual support is what it's really all about. And so, anyway, I just... I then I became super excited about the show, <laughs> and I was reading about your dissertation and you know what is thick psychophysiology and all this stuff that I thought I would never be reading about, <laughs> but but now I'm super excited about it. So yeah, so I think that would be a good place yeah. to start to possibly. And I know you're the technology um, that you're you know that you've been working with the the device. What do you call it? The Moxie. 
I call it the Moxer sensor. There's a lot of different Moxie versions sensor. out there. Sure. And that's a wearable. Uh, so why don't we start there? Just tell us about what it does and what it measures and what, you know, what kind of inferences you can make from it. Mm-hmm. So um, there's lots of fun technologies out there right now to measure motion. I would probably say um, the Moxo sensor, um, another way, that's the, that's the company way of calling it, but you could also call it a skin conductance sensor or yeah. galvanic skin response or electrodermal activity sensor. Um, those are all the same words. And um, what that means is the sensor I'm using is probably one of the simplest ones, which is it measures how much people are sweating. <laughs> And uh, we put a little electricity in the skin, and then we see how much comes out. And that tells us the capacitance, how much sweat is in your fingers. Is, and, that, uh, is that related to the galvanic skin response or whatever yep, that was in the exactly. old days? Yeah, no, I, that, that's what everyone's surprised. They're like, oh, you're using that old tool. Now. Like, <laughs> I think they were doing research on this stuff in like the 1900s. When I was a young person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, I'm really getting dated here, too. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, in this space right now, um, a lot more people are much more excited about EEGs and the MRIs and things like that, where we're, like, seeing different parts of the brain light up. Um, but I found in my type of work, um, I really, really wanted to get out of the lab. I didn't want to have a bunch of people come into my lab and look at different color squares or things like that. I wanted to go see people in their real world, so... Maybe it's people uh, in family therapy where they're wearing the sensors during therapy. Or maybe right. it's someone actually going grocery shopping or someone watching a concert. And when you go outside of the lab, that's a completely unexplored space. So I started with something really simple, which is just the old GSRs that haven't, uh, haven't really been updated for a while. And that was what my lab was working on, too. Um, so I kind of just got put into this space that I love. Cool. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, how um, so? What what kind of things does it can you conclude from it? I mean, I know that's one of the difficulties in reading the the parts of. I didn't read the whole dissertation, but I read a lot of it because I just started getting fascinated. And the challenges, you know, you you want to draw conclusions, but you have to really look at it from a variety of different angles. So I understand you also take video of the people that you're working with. So in some cases, it's autistic children, and in some cases, it's a corporation and and seeing what's happening at the time that you're measuring these uh, changes in their skin, uh, their perspiration, I guess, is what it is. Yeah, so um, I think, you know, when I started out my dissertation and I I didn't know much about emotions back then, um, I really had a viewpoint that, like, oh, I'll just put a probe at this part of the brain and then I'll know how excited you are and I'll put a probe here and I'll know how happy you are. Um, uh, And uh, bad news, there's... You can't do that. <laughs> People are working on it still, but uh, there's no, there's no, it's really interesting. There's no clear correlates to um, the kind of emotions that we're seeking. So mm-hmm. even like the, like a simple emotion, I'm using simple lightly, like happiness. Um, if we want, and like, there's lots of people who pay lots of money to measure happiness, the marketing people being the highest level there. Yeah, um, yeah. We don't have a good measurement of happiness, actually, in psychophysiology. Like, we can look at whether a person smiles or not, and that, that, that's interesting, but it ends up that um, we're more likely to smile, actually, when we're with our friends, more mm. than whether we're happy or not. We're just, ha- we smile to communicate something more than we're smiling because it's an effect in itself. Um, so, yeah, it's really, really difficult to measure an emotion, and we're still at the level of what is an emotion? When we say someone's afraid, 
what are we saying? Like, is there a specific thing or are there multiple things that we're saying when we say someone's afraid? So that right. all being said, to answer your question, what the uh, moxosensor measures is, um, and specifically sweat, and what that's a correlate to is the sympathetic nervous system. And that's your fight or flight response. Um, and so why you should care about that is that's your, like, when your adrenaline starts pumping and your eyes are dilating and you're, you're feeling your heartbeat faster, this is all that sympathetic nervous system. Um, and, God, they, they chose a horrible word for this, but what this is a marker for in emotions is what we call arousal. And this is how intense are you feeling right now? So right. Really highly aroused, that means that, oh, man, my, I'm like, I can barely concentrate. I can barely focus. I'm so excited right now. And if you're on the other end of that, you're bored or you're lethargic or you're super calm. Um, when people meditate, this is the state they tend to be in. They tend to be in a non-reactive state, if you will. So um, yeah. that's what I'm measuring. I'm measuring that one dimension of how intense things are. But because I'm just measuring that, I don't know, I don't have the full story. And I'm yeah. more and more convinced that the full story can only be measured when we have a human interpretation on top of it. Yeah. If I have a... Go ahead. <laughs> well, one of the things that I was most excited to read about was the study using the autistic child. Was he climbing a, a climbing wall? Yeah, I can, uh, I can retell that story. This is actually... Sure. This was... This was way, way back in the beginning. Um, I'll give you the, the, the longer version, which is even more fun. Is I had just gotten into MIT. I, was done, I did my first six months there, and I was so exhausted. I, I, they pushed me so hard, and there was a lot of kids who knew a lot, or a lot of adults who knew a lot more than I did. So I wanted to take a break, and I live up in Colorado, and I knew that winter break, um, there was there's some good snowboarding up here. So I was like, oh, I wonder if I could go be in Colorado at that. And it ended up being the case that these occupational therapists stopped by the lab one day from Colorado. And they said, hey, we'd love to have you there. So I said, okay, I'll go help some occupational therapists. Oh. The rest of the time. I didn't really expect to see much data. And so I just hung out with these occupational therapists for a day. And we were putting this galvanic skin response sensor on people. And there's this kid we tested. And I didn't know anything about therapy. And I didn't know much about children with autism. Um, and the kid... Um, when he was wearing the sensor, he was doing rock climbing. He climbed about six feet up. And what ended up happening was um, my sensors were going off the charts. It was like, holy cow, I've never seen someone up this high. Now, I'm looking at the kid, and the kid eventually goes down. And the kid turns to the therapist and says, I'm so bored, and I'm hungry. Can I do something else? And I was like, okay, my sensors have to be broken. There is no way I'm getting the surprise state. We have this kid here who says they're bored. I'm like, well, I'm just going to assume I, we're broken and this is going to be a waste of a um, session we'll have to try to get. Then the therapist he put him on a zip line. I'm like, okay, that should get him up and running. But he's already so high and he couldn't go any higher anyways. And I was like, hmm, this isn't working. And the therapist told me, I bet you, he is so low right now. He's probably the lowest you've ever seen. I'm like, actually kind of the opposite. He's the highest I've ever seen. And, and then she thought about it for a second. This is where the occupational therapists are really cool. And she's like, oh my gosh, what he's doing is he's trying to cope with being overwhelmed. But when he yes. was climbing up on that rock, he was so highly aroused that his way of coping is saying he's bored and he doesn't want to be doing this. Um, but... Um, and he's also saying this weird thing about he's hungry. It ends up for this kid, when he chews on food and takes and eats a snack, that really helps him calm down. 
So she took him into another room and they had a snack and my sensors went all the way down. And I was like, holy cow, there might be some useful information coming out of the sensor. And that was kind of the start of my entire master's dissertation and company that was that day. So. Aha! You know, that was a definite <laughs> aha moment. And that was the most thrilling thing that I read was, because as a therapist, of course, I could see so many applications for that. You know, w- one of our, the founder of our organization, Beth Green, she's famous in workshops and, and intuitive counseling sessions for saying, when you say something for her saying, that's not it. <laughs> and and that I just could laughed when I read that story because I thought you know this is so really it's not just autistic kids who do that who have these ways of denying what they're feeling and turning it into the opposite in order to cope with overwhelming feelings and so I just thought that was so such a brilliant entree the universe gave you into your whole you know your whole future and and who knows what else it's going to bring but that how that could be applied like you were saying you know to to clients in a in a family therapy session or to individuals in a therapy session and you wouldn't you know you could say that's not it and they would say oh yes i really do feel sad you know and once the technology is able to distinguish between sad and frightened or whatever you know, <laughs> then you could say no the data shows that you're frightened what are you frightened about I mean we could do it in 10 seconds rather than 10 sessions yeah well what's interesting about that and you know that was originally what I was planning on doing is kind of going down that route um, and I do believe the data does say something um, but and, you know now I'm going to go back into the emotional theory world here but um, what my viewpoint on what it means to be scared or frightened is that there has to be a human interpretation part of it. So if I'm working with a kid and we see these like large spikes up there and this kid says they're bored, how to interpret this is actually really interesting because if they don't actually believe that they are scared or that they're recovering, if they don't have that mental image, then their body is acting that way, but their mind is not. So it almost creates a very different emotional experience. I don't tell them, no, you're actually scared because they're not. Because I really do believe um, this fear actually requires a cognitive element. It requires you to think and have a framework around it as Right, well. right. It requires you to interpret that arousal in a certain yeah. way. Um, to give you another example of the complexities of this is um, I, I work a lot with kids. So um, you, you, we've probably all been to that birthday party where it's the kid's birthday and they're super, super excited. They're like highly aroused, really energetic. And then something really tiny and small happens, like milk gets spilled or someone is mean to someone. And all of a sudden that kid goes from super excited to like crying and bawling and just having a horrible, like overwhelmed, stressful reaction. And what's oh, happening yeah. <laughs> moments is the kid is aroused the entire time. They're shifting their interpretation of that arousal um, uh, to different level. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I, I mean... <laughs> Do you have a – another thing I like about that I want to just say to start with is that I think one of the dangers of being a therapist, and I know I've fallen into this trap many times, is making assumptions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because you look like X or you've had this experience or that experience, you know, making a, any assumption about that is really a, a very painful and, and uh, takes you down the wrong track. 
a lot yeah. of times. And so I love what you're saying about that, that, you know, it, this kind of technology can help you be very neutral about, you know, this is what we're seeing. You know, I wonder how your brain is interpreting that information and why. Yeah. I'll give you guys another fun example because these problems just keep popping up for me. Um, I was working on a, a car. Uh, I was working on a car study. And this was, we put something in the car that was really stressful. I, I can't say what it was, but it was very stressful to have this in the car. And the, uh, we had a guy driving in the car and you could see him clenching his fist. He was just like, oh my God, it was like white knuckled. His wife turns to him and says, are you okay? You look really stressed. He's like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And like, you see him focus, he's making a few mistakes. And then I interviewed him afterwards and I said, was that drive stressful at all? And he said, no, no, it was fine. It was a perfectly normal drive for me. <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't know what to do with this data because I, I, I see all of these evidence for that the body is reacting stressful and the skin conductance is off the roof, of course. But at the same time, if he doesn't tell me that story, it means that he probably doesn't see he's stressed. Now he might go into work and he might attribute, like, you know, these guys are getting me more agitated than ever. Um, but it's not necessarily, I can't just label it as, oh, he's clearly stressed. So it's much more difficult to say this. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the paradoxes that we, in our, you know, kind of email exchange before, before you know, we, we with, between me and Elliot, I was mentioning about how often we, as especially men, I think, are not really... We don't want to let people know what our true feelings are. Um, and I'm not saying that was the case in this case. Sometimes we just are not even present to what we're really feeling. And we, d- we don't want to know ourselves because we don't want to uh, divulge, you know, that we're feeling a certain way. We're feeling powerless or we're feeling weak or we're feeling, you know, because for us as men, that's a big threat. Um, to feel weak, then someone's going to attack us or someone's going to take advantage of us. And our whole role, quote, role, you know, as a protector, provider, you know, is then, you know, under threat. And so don't admit you're feeling weak, you're feeling, you know, <laughs> so. so it, speaking of that. Yeah. Go ahead. Speaking of the, uh, the manly version of this, um, I was doing a project with Lowe's looking at uh, the experience people had buying vacuum cleaners of all things like wet, dry vacuum cleaners. And so we get all these like kind of hardcore carpenter men to buy, buy the vacuum cleaners. And I'm looking at the skin conductance of all these guys coming in and buying a vacuum. And the number one thing I see in all my data is that when they look at the pretty shiny vacuum, they get a reaction because it, and, and, and then so I then show the data back to them. I'm like, why, why do you think you react to that? And like all these like very macho men say, oh, you're right. I like that one because it's shiny. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like this kind of moment where it's like, if you ask any person what, what they're looking for, in fact, you'd be like durability or like good price. But it's like, no, you're looking for something shiny. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elliot, how... How are you incorporating or are you, is it important to, to explore that dynamic of what are people actually feeling and why are they not connected to what the GSR is showing you? Mm, yeah, so most of my work, I call myself an experienced designer. So I'm really um, focused on that human-centered front where I really look at 
what do um, what do the shoppers or what do the customers really want? And this can get and you're bringing up an interesting point, Helen, is that um, this can get pretty complicated if the shoppers themselves don't know what they want. And I'll give you an easy example in this space is with uh, kids. So we're for the last year, we've just been focused on how to get children to be engaged with school and with reading and digital tools. And kids don't know what they want at all. <laughs> they have no idea how they're feeling. Um, and in, in fact, it's actually a skill that therapists work on with teaching kids is here is how to reflect that you are overwhelmed or you are stressed or you do not like this right now. And here is how to behave in part of that. Um, so a lot of my work is really um, gets into this space where the, the customers themselves don't know what they necessarily want. And so what I do in these circumstances is I do not look at emotions. I don't look at emotions as things that need to be solved, right? Like, okay, you were frustrated right there. That's fine. Um, the question is really much more about behavioral things. So if you can, like, skip the emotions and look at the consequence of the emotions, it's much easier. So our kids might not say that they're bored reading, though a lot of them do. <laughs> they're aware enough to say they're bored reading. Right. Um, that's one emotion they can identify. <laughs> they can tell if they don't want to read anymore. They have gotten that skill down well. But let's take a little bit more complicated one. Um, so, for example, one of the things that we've been learning is that... Um, when um, when we lecture to kids, when we talk to kids, which kids have to have all day long, they tend to not like that, actually. They don't like it when um, you tell them, here, let me show you how to do this, or let me tell you the answer, or listen to me, and I'm going to explain this. Because adults don't like that, and so kids don't like it, too. But they get yeah. it all the time. So the kids aren't necessarily aware that they don't like this. Oh, but I can see in the eye tracking that every time we talk to them, they start looking at their feet and the posters on the walls. Um, so I know, and with the skin conductance, they, they drop out every time we try to talk to them. So I know it bothers them, even though the kids themselves can't reflect it. But it's very hard for me to say, I'm here to serve you, and I know this is boring you, because the kids can't ask. So what I tend to do is look at larger behavioral. So, for example... Where this becomes a problem is, oh, the kids are doing math problems and they don't know how to do the math. And it's, and like, they're frustrated with that point. They're like, oh, I can't do this. This is hard and this is stupid. And I'm like, well, actually, we look at the full experience. It's when you got bored back then and stopped paying attention, even though you're not aware of it. So when you can lean on behaviors or lean on kind of like outcomes that children or designers desire, then you can start incorporating emotions even if people are not aware. I hardly ever try to solve and design for emotions themselves. It just ends up emotions. It has all sorts of fun problems in design. So hmm. the, the, the way you're taking it is more that the emotions are really, it's not necessary to understand the emotions. You just take the raw data and look at the consequences of that data regarding whatever topic you're researching, whether it's education or Legos or or yeah, vacuum so cleaners. Another, like, to just clarify that a little bit more, because it is complicated. I think it's the first time I've ever been asked this stuff. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> is, uh, yeah, like, most people don't ask these fun questions. Well, fun. well good. I'm glad. Um, but, uh, so, like, going back to our kids' example, is, like, are the kids, quote-unquote, actually bored like, well, I don't know. Bored could mean many things. Are they not paying attention and are they distracted and are, are they struggling to focus? Absolutely. These are less loaded terms. 
Are the kids aware that they're bored? Mm, mostly, usually not in these moments. But that's okay because we're not trying to solve for the kids complaining about this. We're trying to solve for the consequences. The consequences mm. they don't know how to do the problems when because they weren't listening. Or the consequences are they want to quit because they're looking for more stimulation. So there still are consequences regardless of how aware we are of our interests. Hmm. That's, that brings up one of the main things I wanted to talk about um, uh, with you. And, you know, I've been also researching other, you know, there's other technologies that have been developed at MIT and, and uh, commercialized like Affectiva. I'm wondering, so one of the questions was, are you collaborating or working with other outfits that are that are have another way of uh, measuring emotions through facial recognition and stuff like that so we could yeah. uh, is that something is that something you're doing or interested in doing so um this is a like whenever i talk to data people this is the first thing they usually recommend to me they're like haha yeah. you have one dimension what if you had seven dimensions <laughs> then you yeah. would really know what person's feeling um there's been a little bit of research that shows if we measure skin conductance and heart rate together, that can give us extra information. Uh-huh. Um, so personally, where my journey has been taking me, and I and I know companies that are doing that, um, yeah. Yeah. but um, for me personally, what I have found is actually the best, <laughs> this is going to sound really weird. This always sounds weird coming from the MIT guy, um, but um, <laughs> my own personal belief at this point now that I've been doing this for seven years is actually um, (laughs) the best way to understand someone is just to have good empathy skills yourself. So when I go into these rooms with these kids, I don't need the skin conductance sensor to know this kid does not like your software. Like I can (laughs) see them being bored. I can feel it. And like, you know, I, I've been telling people, it's like, even if you watch it on a camera, you can't get that same feeling you have when you're in that room and you're just feeling like, wow, this is really rough for you right now. And I personally want to just like remove it from you because I feel so bad for you being there. So that actually is the, by far the strongest way of measuring emotions, which is Yes, hilarious. that's really cool that you're saying that. And uh it, we all have that, you know, it's our, whatever you want to call it, it's our, you know, our sensing, yeah. our, we're, we're sensing. We are, we are wired to understand yeah. how other people feel. Like we are, yeah. we are human computers who have really good technology in ourselves of figuring yes. this out. And what a lot of my science colleagues try to do is like block all that out because it's a human element, right? It's like, oh, we need this precise and digital. And I'm like, every time you do that, you are removing important information about what's actually going on in this moment. Now, there is room for biases. This is a this is the nature of ethnography and qualitative work. Yeah. So, um, you know, most of my clients still would much rather see the skin conductance graphs than me say, you know, I went in the room and that kid was not enjoying your software. They don't buy it. They don't believe it. But when I show them the same exact story with the skin conductance, they're like, oh my holy cow, this is crazy. We need, we need to change it. So there's something about that quantitative data that makes it more um, persuasive. Um, but I firmly believe that um, I, I, I do not ever want to let go of my human intuition because otherwise I'll be making up stories. And that's, I really don't want to be doing that. And in the field we're in, I would venture to say at least half, probably more of kind of neuromarketing work is very prone to just giving you fake data, fake things that they, you could just make up a story and just show it to them 
because they took out that human element, that like kind of intuitive check of what's going on. I love what you're saying, Elliot. You know, that that is one of the core skills that we train for in the inner revolution is is intuition. Mm-hmm. We have a whole a whole department that does intuition counselor training, which is basically just doing what you're saying. It's it's really training you to use that intuitive skill. And, you know, we're talking, it's so fascinating to hear you saying that because we're saying this is not just for counselors. This is for scientists or political activists <laughs> or, or homemakers or anybody yeah. else because you've got to hone those intuitive skills in order to really relate to people, in order to accomplish anything in the world. Yeah, and uh, you can imagine um, I'm not well embraced. This viewpoint is not standard now in most of the sciences. Um, but, um, you know, who does embrace it are ethnographers. And those, those are the people I take most of my knowledge from. And I really, I cite them as the people who taught me the most are those people who, like, go into different cultures and really try to understand what's going on. They, they have to rely on these skills as well. Yes, they do. And, you know, if we're going to, I mean, one of, again, one of the things that I was so excited about finding you, one of the reasons was that if we're going to integrate these technologies into humanity in a way that's beneficial and not just manipulative, we are going to have to use those, you know, that empathy, that intuitive side to be able to really uh, custom design them in order to make these technologies for the highest good of all, not just mm-hmm. the highest good for the corporation. Mm. I'll give you a fun example that I was just for my dissertation looking up kind of, okay, who else kind of looks for these qualitative markers on this quantitative data? And uh, there was this one neuroscientist, I don't remember his name, it was a very tiny article, and he just said, hey, neuroscientists, we do all this stuff where we're like, and then we made them angry, and then this part of the brain lighted up. And they said, you know what you could do? You could ask the person if they felt angry because, like, they're not doing that. They're not even asking, hey, this thing we thought we made you feel, did you feel it? They don't even ask that. They just kind of assume <laughs> that the stimuli work correctly. And I'm like, yeah, that, that, that seems like a good start. <laughs> it's just like, you know, checking to see your, your assumptions are true. Um, and I do want to kind of, like, going on the other side, though, is I don't want to knock. I, I am the greatest critic of my own sense of uh, the sensors we use. But, um the, the sensors do help, especially for these kids, right? As I said, the kids are not aware of their emotional experiences. So um, to go back on this one about, um, you know, passive material, like these animations and this talking to things are pushing kids away. When I was first seeing this data and I saw the eye tracking and the kids not looking, I'm like, well, maybe they're just listening or like, you know, because it, it was very counterintuitive to what I Imagine, like, you know, I really did believe that, you know, Sesame Street and SpongeBob were the best ways to engage a child. So, you know, sometimes even our intuition is like, we're like, you know, we're seeing things that make us question it, but we still have these frameworks. So, and then when you don't have people who can articulate how they're feeling very well, um, the skin conductance really clearly helped me understand things that I kind of had an idea for, but it really made me understand it better. Um, so um, it's not to say these digital tools don't enhance it. It's just they're enhancements. They're not replacements for our intuition. 
Well, and, and the idea that we, as you said earlier, Elliot, that we have to add the human interpretation element. You know, there has to be some way of integrating, you know, what we know as humans that the GSR cannot know or that even the computerized scanners that look at your eyes or your facial <laughs> structure or whatever it is, your 45 muscles that show emotions uh, in your face, you know, we we have to have some integration. We cannot just feel like we have found the, you know, this is a new messiah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, what you're talking about, it, you know, maybe one day technology can solve it all. But um, like, let's take a non-emotional example, so it will be less emotional in our conversation about it. Um, but um, so, take for example, just um, a AI trying to identify objects, right? Like, is this a picture of a dog or a cat? Um, Google's been working hard on this, and I know other com- uh, researchers have as well. Well, it ends up being the case that humans are much better programmed at identifying objects than um, computers are these days. Um, so some of the best AI algorithms out there to even just identify pictures actually use people, like hundreds of people, probably hundreds of thousands of people, to actually help them filter out, is it a picture of a dog or a cat? Like they use people to kind of um, supplement the AI part of it. So if we use people to identify um, whether it's a cat or a dog, then it makes sense to also use people to identify this emotional state because we have really good skills in this. <clears throat> Yeah. So I'd like to, one of the ways that I thought that these kinds of technologies could help in is in helping us to notice and be more self-aware, more reflective. I mean, we often, and I'm a parent and, you know, I have a 13 year old son, soon to be 14 and a 10 year old, you know, and we get reactive with each other. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to be able to intervene in that process before it escalates to a point where, you know, we're, we're yelling at each other or, you know, we're, we haven't, you know, hurt each other in, I mean, emotionally we've hurt each other, but, you know, I'm just being honest. It's part of yeah. being a parent and, you know, it's part of relationships. It's part of spousal relationships or, you know, all relationships, right? So this is a, could be a really good early warning device to help us like a digital coach because we're not so concerned possibly. And I, I'm wondering if there, if you've explored this at all that, you know, when we don't, we don't want to admit about how we're feeling sometimes. Cause again, as I said earlier, we're going to look bad. So, so do you think it's the case that if people had a way to get notified in some digital way where they don't have, they're not worried about the judgment of the computer saying, Hey Todd, you look stressed. Maybe you should <laughs> go take a walk or, you know, that's really my interest. And, and even further than that, what, we're, what we like to try and help people do is to, we have a process that we call checking in about what you're supposed to do. And it's an intuitive process where you kind of get centered and neutral and check in about whether you're supposed to, you know, eat that piece of candy or, you know, like, yep, yep. you know, to try and have an, a, a live a more of a intuitively guided life. Um, so... So I, I'm curious about your response to that. And do you think technology has a role in that? Could it, you know? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like the number one question a lot of startups like call me up and ask me to consult for them on. Oh, is, really? uh, this kind of, the, the way I frame it is like the Fitbit for emotions. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And, and I and you can probably tell just by how I explain what an emotion is. I'm like, well, first off, you're not going to measure stress, so don't say yeah. you're measuring stress, um, because I, it's uh, it, it, inco- it requires a cognitive element, and we don't measure that part, so we can't claim we're measuring it. Right. Um, but um, the thing that I keep pitching to companies to do, and you know, maybe one day they'll do it, is the thing I'm most excited about in this space is actually kind of a feedback mechanism, mm-hmm. um, because. Um, what happens is that we are constantly changing throughout the day our emotional state, right? Like we will emotionally react to all sorts of things throughout the day. And I think the most interesting thing for me is I would like to be more aware of those reactions. Yeah. Um, so um, the, the, I, the idea I keep telling someone should make, and you know, I can make it, but I'm having too much fun right now. But um, <laughs> uh, the, the thing that I would like to see is for me personally is I would like the device to just be a very simple um, vibration um, so that when I emotionally react to things, um, Mm. it lets me know that I'm emotionally reacting. Um, So it's like, oh, wow, this was a really intense reaction I just had there. And, oh, that's a really small reaction. It doesn't label it. It doesn't do an intervention that all the stuff that humans do better than my little device. But if you could just tell me when and how much, that's the thing I'm not very aware of. Well, let's Mm. make one. (laughs) <laughs> I know, I know. If anyone wants to, they can contact me, and I'll, and I'll just be like, if you here's the protocol, you can just make it. It'll probably take about like literally twelve hours. <laughs> well, Todd and I might be calling you, Elliot. Yeah, yeah. We 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 have a strong interest in this. You know, yeah. we feel that so many problems in our world are related to a lack of empathy. A lack of really being able to relate, not being trained in this. I mean, we don't get any education in using our intuition, you know, and so anything that can help, uh, you know, prompt us when we're being reactive, help to make us more, you know, uh, reflective. I'm not sure, you know, what term to use, but just more thoughtful as we're going through our day. You're right. I mean, we have our emotions can change so drastically. Can you imagine can you imagine if the United Nations and, you know, all of the other negotiations had s- such a uh, vibrational uh, alert that would just, okay, and everybody agrees that they're going to stop when they when the s- signal says they're being reactive? We call it call it being lunch. <laughs> <laughs> right. But just imagine the the impact that that could have in the world. Or, you know, I mean, if if people had such an alert on their arm before they Twitter at two o'clock in the morning, you know. <laughs> yeah, they actually. So just to give you kind of like some more fun, like theoretical questions on this is that um, there's a study done with actually a galvanic skin response where they are. Uh, had uh, people, stockbrokers, um, wear galvanic skin responses um, while they were buying and selling stocks. And it ends up that when you're highly stressed and you have these high skin conductance responses, uh, you're much more likely to make poor decisions and more mistakes. Um, and so um, I really like this kind of concept of um, that the galvanic skin response could actually show these kind of moments of uh, when, like, when you're making poor decisions and you might be a little bit overwhelmed. Now, here's the interesting question. That research already exists. Um, and this is actually why I kind of got out of Harvard. And I think this is kind of the more, and probably not for the listeners on this show, but this is the harder part for me, is this research already shows. So I can make an argument that, you know, if I sold this to everyone on Wall Street, 
I could help the Dow Jones make more. Um, but now here's the problem is that that already exists and that the product doesn't exist right now. Um, and I actually, I saw the same work when I was helping kids with autism. Um, and I think the autism one, it makes a little bit more sense is that here I've got this sensor and I spent three to four months uh, at this occupational therapy place, learned so much and put it on a whole bunch of kids. Um, you know what was not being really asked for? The parents were not asking, hey, can I like watch this the whole time? Like, can I see um, what this kid is doing? Can I see what my child is doing? Can I see how they react? Now, part of it, they might have wanted to be polite. But um, I actually, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that occupational therapy for them is one of the few times they get to sit down and they're not overwhelmed and exhausted. Right. So the last thing they really would want necessarily is, to be prompted with a whole bunch more of information when they're already so overwhelmed. Um, and so I really do believe that a lot. And like, that was the moment I decided not to do hardware is when I realized that um, there are people out there who really do desire to be more empathetic or more self-aware of their emotional states. But there's a lot of, a lot of people who are already overwhelmed by their emotions the way it is. The last thing they want is to be more aware of it. Now, I think present company excluded, but this was a real issue I had, is that if I'm going to be human-centered, when are people actually asking for that? Would the United Nations really want to know this? Well, you see, th that's our job. You know, that that's the job of the innerrevolution.org and many, many similar organizations to us is yeah. to try to teach. And, you know, Todd and I certainly would not proclaim to love every opportunity for intervention in our <laughs> lives. <laughs> you know, that, I wish I wish I were that evolved, but... But we do embrace it, and we put ourselves in situations where we get intervened with uh, very yeah. regularly, and and it's it is as they say a developed ta an acquired taste, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we are taught, as you were mentioning, the fight or flight uh, paradigm earlier, and you know we are taught that that we are you know we should either fight or flee. We are not taught that we should sit and process. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, and so it, it goes against our essential primitive nature. And, and yet this has got to happen, you know, yeah. and it's, it's so sad for me to hear you saying that, although I completely understand it. It's, you know, it's sad because it's such an acknowledgement of, of the way people think those autistic parents might learn how to support their children so much more effectively in a very short period of time. But they're not going to do it. They're going to suffer for the next 30 years instead of spending a week learning what arouses their child and how to help calm them down. Well, for what it's worth on their defense, but I, I agree with you, but I, I, I do, I do, the last thing I want to do is ridicule parents of children. No, no, I don't, mean, I don't mean to they ridicule don't, them at all. Yeah, I they, they totally don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you totally know, like, how can I help them, right? That's the real question is how can I get the information to them in a way? And like... You know, so that's an example, but companies are the same way. And right now I'm trying to run a consulting company. And it's like, how do I help them understand that they are losing billions of dollars because of the decisions they're making? And yeah. to, just to frame what you just said, Helen, is if, we can, if you create a little bit of space, a little bit of time, you can really understand your customers better or you can really empathize more. But, I mean, from this discussion and also things I've been thinking about before is, Empathy requires space, right? It's like if we are we are in this like doggy dog, super stressful world where everything is burning on fire, 
it is so hard for me to approach anyone and say, here, let me help you be empathetic when there's a fire going on right now and I need to put it out. I totally get that. I mean, um, among our own community, you know, it's like our founder, as I was saying before, Beth Green, keeps saying, aren't you so much happier? Aren't you happier when you're more aware of what's happening and you can intervene in a more effective way with the realities of life? And, of course, it resonates through the room. Yes, 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 we're so happy. Well, why don't you take a look at that? Go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, it's that. It's that, that instinctive, self-protective ego reaction that that hopefully is in transition. I mean, that's all I can say. Hopefully, someday you will you will be developing some hardware, Elliot, because people will be say will be clamoring for more self-awareness tools that will make our whole world a different place to live in. And you know, you're doing a wonderful job, and I certainly don't mean to malign. The, the parents of autistic children, oh, no, no. I, I swear to God, I would shoot myself. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's a challenge beyond human ability to, to tolerate, really. It's just so painful. I've had many clients with autistic children. And oh, it's wow. So yes. And we have an adult. So, you know how stressful that can be. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, no, and I find it more interesting for, as I said before, it's um, working with these because, you know, like an individual person, like they might choose to go down a path of trying to be more empathetic. But um, when I'm trying to work with people like uh, like CEOs and vice presidents of companies, like where there's a real financial incentive, like, look, the path is very clear that if you're empathetic, you your, your company is going to succeed. Like the, all your goals are aligned with this and that they themselves still cannot create that space for empathy. That's the one that has me the most curious these days about what does it take to help someone kind of jump jump that ship of defensiveness and like worry and anxiety and say, you know, if I work on understanding, then I'm going to get there. Um, that's that's the questions that keep me up at night these days. Well, you know, the I don't know if this is something you probably thought about many times, but we are so dominated by the ego and the ego was developed when we were when we were born as our awareness of our individual existence and we believed and experienced that if we don't listen to the ego which is our awareness of our individual existence that we are going to die Mm -hmm. and as we progress through our lives we continue to react from that very primitive place of if I change anything from this individual perception I'm going to die Mm-hmm. And that that's the only thing that makes any sense when you think about it in terms of mm-hmm. you're going to make billions of dollars if you change the way you perceive things. Nope, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if I change, I'm going to die. <laughs> that's a very extreme view, but it's interesting. I should interview more of my uh, the people I uh, work with and say, do you feel if you did this, you would die? <laughs> well, and, you know, to try and help them understand what is it that they really are afraid of. I know. Because mm-hmm. it can't possibly be the things they're saying. It, it, we're back to the very beginning. You know, <laughs> they, they are obviously very aroused by your conversation. <laughs> and, and they are not able to interpret that emotion. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a, it's been kind of this fun part of my work now is, um, you know, I've been working a lot on how to be a good researcher, how to really understand customers. And now I'm kind of switching over how to understand the organizations that I'm affecting, right? Because 
at the end of the day, if I understand the kids that I'm trying to help, but the organization isn't budging, then I've uh, completely wasted my time and the kids' time as well. And so I'm really working more on that organizational shift now. About well, and, and there is an ego to the organization too, Elliot. Yeah, yeah. I you know, yeah, they they also believe that their survival depends on embracing only the current paradigm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're, and they're very aroused by that idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. the whole organization, there's a collective arousal that happens <laughs> when we're challenged mm-hmm. to change. Yeah. Uh, we have about three minutes left. Yeah, so why don't you tell us what we're doing next week, and then we'll come back and wrap it up. There's so much more to talk about. I wish we had like another two hours, but... I know. This has been so fascinating, Elliot. Okay, yeah. next week, is Grinder more than a way to hook up? Is it also an opportunity for public outreach and a way to build community? Let's find out. With 2 million daily active users, Grindr, the gay social network, is uniquely situated to advance human rights by addressing health justice, and other important issues among LGBT populations. Can a hookup site really change the world? Why does it matter to all of us? Co-host Chris Reese and Helen Hillix will speak with Jack Harrison Quintana, Director of Grinder for Equality, G4E, and Peter Slaughterdyke, Vice President of Marketing for Grinder, to explore these questions and more. Can we embrace social media as a partner to improve the quality of our lives and suspend judgment if we don't engage in similar practices? Why do we even label someone as LGBT? We are all humans with the same needs for love, comfort, safety, good health, and well-being. Recently, Grinder for Equality sent targeted messages in English and Spanish, educating Grinder users about the therapy that vastly reduces HIV transmission risk. Follow-up research recently showed that G4E influenced 20% of new pre-EP users' decisions to start treatment. This is the highest good of all. Join us. So we've got two minutes left now. What do you want to tell our listeners, Elliot? What do you want to leave us with? Yeah, so um, my guess is that there's a lot of listeners on here who are um, probably working really, like they're interested in their own self-awareness of their own emotional states. So um, um, in that case, I I would encourage you, the, the two things I would say is that, yes, it's absolutely possible to become more aware of your emotional responses. Um, you can visit our website or there's also lots of other websites that talk about how to become more aware of your emotional state. And it's cool. It's really trippy when you start seeing the world with this additional level of data. Um, to give an example, I measured my skin conductance while I was working at a design firm, IDEO, and it's a very flat organization. but. When I was measuring my skin conductance, I actually recognized that every time the boss walked in, then I started reacting. I'm like, aha, so that boss does matter, even though I didn't think it mattered. We've got about 30 seconds now. And the other part I would say is to really question what does it mean for an emotion to exist and how do we define emotions and what, um, what are we using cognitively to describe it versus what is physically happening. Well, cool. thank you so, so much, wonderful Elliot. Wonderful having you. Yeah, yeah, you're just you're just a delightful person, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as a brilliant researcher. So, thank you so much for the good work you're doing, and we're sending you a big hug through the ethers. And I hope we can stay in touch. Thanks, Helen and Todd. I sure appreciate it. You guys. Yeah, have a you're great welcome. Day. You too. Thank yeah. you so much.
Bye. 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 Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be inspired. Join us.